Hello listeners. Welcome to the 5th episode of season 1 of Itihasan, a Indic history podcast. And you're listening to Narendra Vikram. Season 1 is all about the Vijayanagara Empire. In the last episode, we traced the rise and fall of the autocratic Vijayanagara regent Aliya Ramaraya and how his policies ultimately led to the beginning of the end for the empire and also him. In this episode, we will look at how politics and power worked in a highly evolved society like Vijayanagara and more so in its cosmopolitan capital Hampi. We will first look at the contemporary European and Persian chronicler narratives to help us understand how such a society was looked at in the eyes of the foreigners who came from a very different cultural framework. that will set up the context and also give a better contrast when we go into how it actually was from the perspective of vijayanagara as part of my research on this topic i've sifted through many historical sources but i must give credit to a fine researcher azim barodawala from lauder institute as part of my research on this topic i've sifted through many historical sources but i must give credit to a fine researcher azim barodawala from lauder institute for a prize winning research paper on this i loved how he fused different scholarly works into a simple lens to look at vijayanagara and understand with a great clarity as to what made its political system tick vijayanagara was one of the biggest trading hubs in the 16th century and as a consequence it used to be the place to visit for many foreign travelers and merchants alike Most of the chronicles of foreign travelers whether European or Persian they used to reflect a sense of awe wonder and incredulity at what they were seeing Now let's set the stage up by looking at a quote by Fernão Nunes a Portuguese traveler horse trader and a famous chronicler of Vijayanagara He lived there from 1535 to 1537 during the reign of Achyuta Devaraya This is what Nunes had to say When the king so desires he commands a man to be thrown to the elephants and they tear him in pieces the people are so subject to him that if he told a man on the part of the king that he must stand in the street holding a stone on his back all day till he released him he would do it end of the quote it's quite clear that nones had a sense of incredulity and he saw the society as being subservient to a mighty despotic king for making a subjects dance to his whims and fancies to these european chroniclers though vijayanagara was rich cultured and very advanced unlike anything they had seen before it still was a highly irrational society where a despotic emperor ruled through fear and arbitrary punishments over his subjects he could have people torn apart by elephants or trampled upon by them without lifting a finger the chroniclers actively used the two lenses of autocrat and arbitrary to make sense of the society they were looking at it clearly must have been cognitively less taxing for foreign chroniclers to look at vijayanagara through these lenses this oriental bias had to do with the socio political and religious developments happening in europe and the unique cultural framework these chroniclers were using very similar to how the british saw indians in their early encounters in india savages that needed their version of civilization We will come back to the experiences of these chroniclers in a bit. Now that we have understood how Vijayanagara's polity was looked at and considered to be very brutish by the foreign chroniclers, let's now see how Vijayanagara saw itself when it came to power and politics. 
before that let's take a quick detour and go on a whirlwind tour of the four dynasties that ruled Vijayanagara empire Vijayanagara was founded around 1336 by two brothers of the Sangama family there were in total five brothers but the main ones were Hakka and Bukkaraya who were the core founders of the empire these two started the Sangama dynasty this dynasty ruled till 1485 after which for the next 20 years it was replaced by saluva dynasty named after an army general saluva narsimha saluva narsimha came to power by a coup that was legitimized by nobility and royalty as a result of instability and misrule by the previous raya after another round of similar instability saluva dynasty was replaced by tulava dynasty founded by veera narsimha in 1505 It was Veeranarasimha's brother Sri Krishna Devaraya or the Great Raya who is known to have ushered in the golden age of Vijayanagara in between 1510 to 1529 AD. In 1542 with the death of last Tulva monarch Achyuta Devaraya the Aravidu dynasty started unofficially under the regency of Ramaraya. It was only in 1565 after the loss at Talikota that Aravu dynasty's official reign had begun. It was also during the Krishna Devaraya's reign many foreign chroniclers like the Portuguese Duarte Barbosa, Domingo Pais, and Venetian traveler Nicola Conti had visited Vijayanagara. Domingo Pais too has left a lot of valuable chronicles detailing the Vijayanagara society. Any Vijayanagara history buff, these names along with Nunes and Razak Al Samarkandi are very familiar. The tour of the four dynasties the listeners might have got a sense of the constantly shifting sands of vijayanagara's political landscape that was very fluid and dynamic this fluid and dynamic nature of the political landscape had its roots in its lack of a system for royal succession this defined vijayanagara uniquely unlike many other empires which at least had a semi rigid succession system in place when one contrasts vijayanagara with its budding peer in north india during the mid 16th century the mughals There is a slight similarity when it comes to succession. The similarity is both of them having a troubled succession path and it immediately ends there. The similarity ends precisely there. Mughals used to have an extremely violent succession path to the throne as all the brothers had to fight it out among themselves. Though everyone knew that the final heir would come from the same dynasty, the only ambiguity was the who among them. The ambiguity was intentional, a survival of the fittest approach with a simple dynastical check in place. When we look at Vijayanagara though, there was no such dynastical safety barrier that Mughals had. It was a free for all game that had to be played. There was no real concept of a heir to the throne. Rather, it was a list of strong aspirants to the throne from royalty and nobility. This made the succession game a very politically dangerous one. If not overtly violent all the time like Mughals it was still violent in a covert sense most times to any declared heir apparent but we will see how this successionless system that looks chaotic on the surface was still able to ensure order with no clear succession path one thing was crystal clear the reigning king had to constantly watch his back to guard against treachery and court intrigues and as a result loyalty in the vijayanagara court was a priceless commodity that was always in high demand since the reinforcement of king's position 
at the center of the administrative, architectural and ceremonial planes was fundamental to the king's success. All displays of loyalty were very crucial to the success of the courtiers and the king himself. With this context in place, it's important to state that it's really flawed to look at Vijayanagara through the lens of oriental despotism practiced by European travelers. For the Europeans, the only way to rationalize what they perceived as irrational was by looking at it through the imported reductionist lenses. It's akin to trying to look at a microbe through a microscope with an incompatible focal lens. The lack of resolution severely hampers the ability of the seer to understand what he is looking at. So he is forced to give a mental shape to it based on his previously observed patterns and experiences. Let's now look at another interesting excerpt from Abd al-Razak Samarkandi, the chronicler from the Islamic court of Samarkand in Central Asia. This is what he had to say. They venerate cows to such an extent that they rub the ashes of its dung on their foreheads. Allah curses upon them. Within three leagues of Mangalore, I saw an idol temple, the likes of which is not to be found in all the world. In the entrance portico was a statue in the likeness of a human being, full stature made of gold. It had two rubies for eyes, so cunningly made that you would say it could see. What craft and artisanship! End quote. It's fascinating that on one hand Razak curses for Hindu worship of cows and soon after he admires the highly advanced craftsmanship of their idols. Similarly, in his other chronicles, Razak praises the king, stating that he is of perfect rule and hegemony, and of Vijayanagara's citizens, he says, have not equals in the world. He finds the Vijayanagara city of Hampi as utopian and heavenly. But then, in all through his chronicles, he also keeps referring to the same citizens as infidels. The apparent contradictions in Razak's chronicles is succinctly explained by Jean-Paul Rubis in his work Travel and Ethnology in the Renaissance. Below is excerpt from his work that sums it up perfectly. Quote, Razak's narrative thus went beyond the mere empirical description of human diversity in order to send a political message, which had more to do with the conditions at his sultan's court than with those in South India. In effect, Razak's description is also a significant example of the fact that within Islam, no less than within Christianity, the dismissal of foreign societies on the grounds of incompatible religious ideologies was not a serious impediment to the elaboration of a descriptive discourse on human laws and customs." End quote. In short, the real goal of Razak is not to criticize the Hindus for their idolatry. It is to criticize his own kingdom for not achieving the same level of advancement that he finds in Vijayanagara. Now that we are familiar with the perspectives of the foreign chroniclers, I would say that the right way to look at Vijayanagara is through the lens of a complex political game that had to be played by all players whether they like it or not. So who were all the main players in this great game? In the 17th century ethno-historical Telugu classic Rai Vachakmu and its beautiful English translation by Philip B. Wagner called The Tidings of the King, it's clear that in Vijayanagara society, the king was at the center of its universe, 
militarily, ceremonially and architecturally. Some astute and historically adept listeners might have been surprised at the king being at the center of architecture. Vijayanagara was unique in that sense and the fusion of architecture into politics goes to the heart of Vijayanagara's foundation. The empire's fate and fortunes are tightly linked to the geographical location like no other empire. Foundation of Vijayanagara is an interesting story that I will delve into a dedicated episode. After the king, there were the courtiers for whom the king was a gateway to riches, influence and their own success. Then there were political aspirants who had a hawk like an eye. On every political move of the king and his faction of courtiers, waiting for them to make a wrong move to capitalize on and if possible even overthrow the king and his faction of courtiers. It's important to mention that overthrowing of reigning monarchs or coup had to be sanctioned ahead by all players in the game and not later as an afterthought. It kind of explains why Ramaraya in previous episodes didn't usurp the throne even when he had the opportunity to. With this constant presence of political threat surrounding the king, the courtiers and the political aspirants, there arose a strong need for mutually dependent relationship between the players of this game. But most importantly, a relationship between the king and his chief minister. That was the most crucial one. In total though, there were six main players in the game. The king, the minister, captains also called as nayakas, or vassals with an empire, queens, merchants and finally the aspirants. Among these, the king, his ministers were the central figures who were very much dependent on each other for their own survival. Both their fortunes were interlinked closely. So even though the minister derived legitimacy and served at the discretion of the king, the king would have to be really suicidal to dismiss his chief minister on a whim or in a bout of anger. It wasn't anything like the modern bureaucracy in democracies which can outlive even 8 to 10 presidents or prime ministers in their office. The term in office and maybe their term on earth of Vijayanagara's ministers and top bureaucracy started and ended usually with the king's reign in most cases. With the king being at the center, militarily, ceremonially, which took most of his time, most of the administrative duties were delegated to his chief minister and this made the latter extremely powerful person after the king. But in the end, it was the king who actually bore the brunt of any breakdown in the society in the event of the minister's administrative policies going wrong. Simply put, the king couldn't afford things to go wrong as there was only so much political capital that he could afford to lose. Considering the constant intrigues, shifting alliances and treachery that was rampant due to the lack of succession path, it was crucial for the king and his minister to get their policies and intrigues right at the first time. Which only meant that both of them had to have utmost trust in each other's capabilities. And so loyalty was the oil that kept the symbiotic relationship smoothly functioning and a crucial part of this political game. Since the king did realize that courtiers would save themselves before saving the king, the courtiers too realized that 
loyalty to the king would be highly rewarded and a guaranteed path to power and influence for themselves and their families. Two excerpts from Razak's chronicles give us a good glimpse of the justice system that can help us better understand the high premium placed on loyalty in Vijayanagara's political system. This is an excerpt on King's response to a foiled assassination attempt by the King's brother. Quote, All suspected of having a hand in the affair were brought down. Many were killed, their skins stripped, their bodies burned, and their families reduced to desperation. Even the person who had brought the sour milk as an invitation for the banquet was executed. The last line best sums up the point really well. The deliverer of this sour milk had no apparent connection to the plot beyond the fact that he was associated with the gathering. Nonetheless, the king thought it was necessary to execute him because the mere association with the episode tainted the servant's loyalty in the eyes of the king. Now let's look at the following quote which describes the relative even-handedness of the justice system. Quote, In the middle of the Chihil Sutun, which means a 40-pillar hall, a eunuch called Dhanayak sits on a platform in independent judgment. At the foot of the platform, staff holders stand in rows. Anyone who has business humbly presents a gift, places his head on the ground, stands up again and pleads his case. The Dhanayak makes a judgment according to the rules that pass for justice in that kingdom. These two excerpts provide us an interesting contrast in practice. A dichotomy of stripped skin on one hand and on the other hand we have rules and independent judgment. A system that has a clear distinction between loyalty to the king versus everyday civil and criminal cases. With this example, we can see a mechanism that acts as a deterrent to any political aspirant scheming to overthrow the king or ministers trying to be disloyal with intrigues. Similarly, if one looks at the Vijayanagara history, it's abundantly clear that the king cannot push too hard on his courtiers, ministers and nayakas. He risks losing support and stands to be deposed. I have to stress here that the king has to first lose his support with the people, with his unfairness, despotism or lack of paying attention to well-being of the empire. Incompetency wasn't tolerated for long in Vijayanagara. Not a happy place for incompetent dynasts, unlike in modern-day India. Let's look at another excerpt from Portuguese chronicler Nunes on the reign of Virupaksha Raya II. Quote, as long as he reigned, he was given over to vice, caring for nothing but women, and to fuddle himself with drink and amuse himself. And he never showed himself either to his captains or his people, so that in a short time he lost that which his forefathers had won and left to him. And the nobles of the kingdom, seeing the habits and life of this king, rebelled. The king had two sons, already grown up, who seeing the wickedness of their father and how he had lost parts of the kingdom, determined to kill him." End quote. The above case of the reigning king being deposed can be explained by the concept of mutual dependence and the interplay between power and loyalty. 
the nayakas and ministers depended upon the kings for their power and legitimacy therefore a weak king represents a threat to their continued prosperity because such a king would be a prime target for an internal coup which could depose him and as a result the loyalist nayakas themselves can end up being prime targets so if they could preempt such a downfall of the king then they could channel it in such a way that they end up becoming the king makers instead wielding influence over the next monarch and hence securing their own prosperity think of it in this way a vijayanagara's kingship is a priceless brand name and the shareholders of that brand would go to any lengths to ensure that the brand's value isn't diluted by an incompetent ceo so the shareholders would force a boardroom coup to topple the ceo and replace him with someone who they think will be competent and strong enough to increase the shareholder value this can be illustrated by the example of sri krishna devaraya's ascension to the throne the reigning king veeranarsimha raya on his deathbed had ordered his chief minister saluvatimarasu to have his brother krishna devaraya executed secretly so that the king's 8 year old son could ascend to the throne instead timarasu cleverly avoids this task and helps krishna devaraya ascend the throne as he believed in the abilities of the great raya to be a great emperor as a consequence timarasu becomes the most trusted and the second to krishna devaraya during his reign so by backing the stronger candidate the minister enhanced his own power and position in the court another important role played by ministers was being educators to the king this is important to understand as in an empire that lacked a clear succession principle it made sense for the reigning monarchs to not train their successors ahead because the monarch training his brother or son to be a monarch in itself would signal few things the offspring or sibling would now not only be a legitimate aspirant to the throne the aspirant himself would become a target of other aspirants who might be looking to overthrow the current dynastical order there was a genuine risk of accelerating or catalyzing a downfall hence most monarchs delayed this as much as possible this can be even witnessed in the murder of sri krishna devaraya's young son immediately after the great raya anointed him as the next heir to the throne and therefore the new monarchs who were not trained and educated in running the empire would have needed support of the ministers to help him learn the ropes gradually and run the empire essentially the ministers were repositories of the courtly knowledge and the kingly protocols which helped maintain continuity between the two reigns and highly talented ministers would be absorbed by the new monarch as long as his loyalty wasn't dubious or questioned earlier we saw how the king was vulnerable against sanction coups by the rest of the players but he still was considered as the embodiment of god on earth and the chief political figure in vijayanagara the bifocality of power is essential to understanding vijayanagara as it had a direct impact 
on the role of architecture and ceremony in the kingdom. The king was the center of the majestic 9-day Mahanavami festival along with the gods and the festival used to be grandest festival of the empire. The vassals and nayakas of the empire had to pay their respects to the king and the gods thereby being physically present in the capital of Hampi. Many nayakas used to make a 3 month long trip from their distant provinces which meant that for almost 6 months they used to be away from their provinces. This was intentional on the part of the king as that regular distance and time away from the provinces meant that the nayakas weren't able to gain enough influence over the provincial subjects that could be useful to start a rebellion. So ceremonial events not only elevated king to divine status but also was a very clever instrument of power to keep away aspirants and troublemakers from realizing their intrigues and plans. The shock and awe of the resulting grandeur during the Mahanabhimi festival showed that the king was in total control on one hand and on the other it diluted the provincial governor's influence over his local subjects. And the king also used to be the center of all important financial transactions between various kingdoms. And he also used to be the arbiter of last resort in the kingdom when it came to resolving exceptional civil or criminal cases. So he had the powers of a modern day president or supreme court to pardon or punish. It's really fascinating that even the lowliest of the citizens could present their grievances to the king if they felt they have been wronged. The only condition being that they must prostrate in front of the king as long as the king wishes before he asks him to present his case. Now let's look at the role of merchants who were an important player too in this great political game. Vijayanagara army relied extensively on imported horses from the port of Hormuz which is in modern day Iran. In the 16th century the Portuguese controlled all the main horse trading routes in the sea. So the empire had little choice but to entertain the Portuguese trading community and keep them happy to ensure an exclusive horse trading deal. This meant these merchants wielded some serious influence in the court and had the ear of the emperor when needed. They could also pull enough strings in the court of Vijayanagara to gain support for their own colonial agendas. It's recorded by the Portuguese chroniclers Domingo Pais and Nunes that they were given preferential seating close to the king during the Mahanavami festival on the Mahanavami Dibba platform in Hampi. The imposing structure of Mahanavami Dibba is supposedly a very famous tourist point for those visiting Hampi. This platform is akin to the New Delhi's India Gate where all royal and state processions used to be taken out in full pomp. A physical structure used for the sole purpose of showcasing the radiance of the king. And now we will see the role of another crucial player, the queens. We have seen in one of the last episodes on the importance of Vijayanagara queens when it came to power and succession. If you remember the widowed queens of Krishna Devaraya and helped Ramaraya by granting him the royal legitimacy to overthrow Salakaraju Tirumala, the maniacal brother-in-law of the dead emperor Achyuta Devaraya in 1543. queens for all practical purposes work behind the scenes and were crucial influencers who brought an enough political firepower in many instances of the empire's history 
with this we end this episode and in the next episode we will see how the architecture and ceremony played an important role in the power and dynamics of this great political game that was being played at the heart of Vijayanagara i hope listeners enjoyed the uniqueness of vijayanagara's political system a huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show if you like the content please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review for the show i hope to see you in the next episode soon till then this is your host and narrator narendra vikram signing off hope you have a wonderful week ahead